academic calling Leah Frankie. Leah Frankie will be familiar to our listeners as we first spoke with her for her debut novel, America for Beginners. We're glad to welcome Leah back to talk about her latest novel, After the Hurricane. After the Hurricane is an engrossing, deeply personal novel as a daughter, Elena, returns to Puerto Rico to search for her troubled father, Santiago, who has gone missing after Hurricane Maria. Desperate to know what happened to the father she once adored, Elena returns to a place she loved as a child but hasn't seen in years. There, she must unravel the truth about who her father is, crisscrossing the storm-swept island and reaching deep into his family tree to find relatives she's never met, each of whom seem to possess a clue about Santiago's fate. It's a novel about discovery, about loss, and about the ties that keep a family together or unravel it. Leah and I talk about inherited trauma and pain, the importance of origin stories, and what writing across two timelines in one novel taught Leah herself about writing. We also briefly pay homage to the masterclass that is Kate Atkinson's novel, Life After Life. After the Hurricane is now available in hardcover from our friends at William Morrow. It's also available as an ebook and as an audiobook from Harper Audio. So joining us on the podcast today is a familiar voice to those of us. I can say face because we are currently on a video call, but for everyone else who's listening to this, it will be voice, but a familiar voice to our podcast listeners, Leah Frankie. Leah, thank you so much for coming back and chatting with us. I'm so happy to be here. So your latest book is called After the Hurricane, and I'm wondering if you could first start us off by telling us a little bit about what it's about. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, after the Hurricane is a novel that takes place a couple of months after Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. Most of the setting of the novel is Puerto Rico. Uh, it's about a young woman who uh, discovers through her mother uh, that her estranged father has gone missing uh, and is tasked with trying to find him or figure out what happened to him both in order to sort of make her mother happy, the young woman, Elena, um, agrees to do this. And also she has sort of a vested interest in her father's house, a historic house in old San Juan, uh, something that she um, it was always understood would be hers upon his passing. And she you know, wants to know if he's passed. Uh, her complicated relationship with her father, um, sort of mixed with her own anxiety about what might've happened to him, fuels her journey. And once she arrives in San Juan, she starts putting together a group of clues that both try and inform where he might have gone, but also unpack some of the big mysteries around his life. He's always been a mysterious figure to her. Uh, it's a journey of sort of discovery of other and also discovery of self. Yeah, and I, I kind of want us to, I think, first talk through, and this will be a, a big big question, I guess, in some ways, um, because I think when I read it, one of the big themes for me that sort of a lot of little things kind of kept coming back to um, is this idea of intergenerational pain. Or Elena says, uh, why are they all just carrying all their things with them? Why can't they ever lay anything down? Uh, why is history so heavy on her heart, on his? And uh, the history point makes sense because Elena is a student of history. Uh, she's, she's going for degrees in history. But this idea of carrying things around, um, carrying a lot of emotional baggage, carrying a lot of sort of untold stories and hidden parts of selves seems to be a very big deal for both um, Elena and for the sort of 
glimpses that we get of the figure of Santiago, um, not so much told uh, through himself directly, but through others and also sort of the backward glance of his narrative of the story. So um, why are you so interested, it seems, in this book in intergenerational pain? Oh, I love that question. Um, I think I'm probably interested in it in the story because I'm deeply interested in, in life. Um, oh. And this is definitely a deeply personal novel, although I'd argue all my all my work is personal. It comes from me. Um, but I am I am in this novel, and I think right now, and like probably always deeply obsessed with intergenerational trauma and the concept of inheritance and what we sort of um you know, inheritance is such an interesting idea. Anxiety of inheritance has has totally dictated so much of our lives and cultures and world history. You know, it's it's sort of, it's the ideology behind like, you know, female purity often is wanting, you know, your children to actually be your children, your genetic material. So it's like inheritance is actually like a, a collective obsession, I think, um, consciously or unconsciously. But I think more and more, um, what I think about a lot with inheritance is often the, the inadvertent nature of it. We inherit genetically from our parents. We inherit um, behaviorally. We inherit so much that there's something about inheritance that is not voluntary. Um, and I think that that's what's really sort of the thing that we all wrestle with and we being like humans of, of being children is that um, we get stuff from our parents that we weren't asking for, that we don't want to have, that they didn't want to give us. And we keep having to deal with it and we're never done dealing with it. And they're never done dealing with it because we are linked in chain. And I don't think that changes if you know who your parents are, if you don't know who your parents are, we are always anxious about what we have been given. And there's something about given that is involuntary, right? what we took, what we're conscious of wanting to have, um, often we, you know, sort of don't get and what we fear in ourselves. And I think that when it comes to mental health, um, that is a huge uh, additional anxiety of what we've inherited, you know, the bad things that we've inherited, the bodily things we've inherited. And the bodily things, of course, are the non-bodily things. They're all interconnected. So I think that the, the obsession in this novel absolutely, you know, beautifully articulated by you, Kim, of, of what you've gotten um, and what you've taken is both one that like my central character, my protagonist Elena has, but it's also the prevailing question of this character, Santiago, who himself is the inheritor. And I think that one of the interesting things about immigration, migration, is it often creates more questions about what we've taken with us. Um, not to say there aren't, of course, intense questions if you live in a place, you know, for 10 generations. Um, but there is often, I've found in my experience, like a certainty of inheritance, not always accurately, but a certainty of like, this is what I got. So I got from my father. I got this blacksmith shop. I got this propensity for radishes. I got this thing versus the way that movement creates more questions because we're not as well acquainted with what came before us. And the more that our parents, um, veil themselves from us, the more that they refuse to reveal themselves, the less we understand what we've been given in their inherited understanding. So I also think that, you know, trauma is an inherited, transmitted, as well as experienced. Um, and that the way that we start unpacking it becomes a lot of our life work if we sort of choose to make it our work. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've had a moment of like, oh, my 
blank ancestors like this because their life experience was this and that meant that they treated me like this and that's why all that happened and the heartbreaking thing about revelation is it doesn't actually change the emotional pain knowledge doesn't always heal but it is something we keep asking for you know one of the first things that i thought i was going to talk about is the the sort of idea of origin stories how we're all sort of obsessed with where do we come from and how did we get to wherever we are and and for me when i was reading your book one of those sort of wormholes that i went on is something that i know a little bit about in terms of my mom's family um, that my maternal grandparents Um, immigrated to the United States through Ellis Island. And like, we have the paperwork, um, we have the trunk that was my grandmother's. Can I see their name in a ship manifest? How bonkers is it to me who never wanted a job in New York City that at lunchtime I can walk down and I can look across and see the place where my grandparents came? I can see, depending on how and where it starts, the beginning of their American story. In the book, it seems that this idea of origin story is something that is definitely not clear cut on on a variety of levels. If we think about Santiago, um, there is sort of the larger than life figures um, of his father and his mother, um, who he has um, very complicated relationships with both of them. Elena has a very complicated relationship with her father, to some extent also her mother as well. Um, And then there is this sort of third figure uh, in in the book that is Puerto Rico, um, because Puerto Rico occupies, I guess, depending on who you ask, Puerto Rico occupies this sort of strange place in the world. Um, So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it was like creating these origin stories and and in particular also writing about Puerto Rico, because I think as much as people are characters in this in this novel, I think I think you talking about Puerto Rico as a as a as a place, but also as a figure is also something that comes quite quite through in this book. I'm so pleased to hear that because it's so, it was so important to me to write about Puerto Rico and for Puerto Rico to feel real and vibrant and dynamic um, and present. So I'm I'm so glad. Um, I uh, so I uh, my father is from Puerto Rico, um, so I'm half Puerto Rican, and I've spent most of my life, I guess all of my life, I mean as far as far back as I can remember, uh, visiting Puerto Rico. Um, I have a lot of family there, um, and. Uh, I think that when I was growing up and then certainly, um, you know, into my my early adulthood, as I as I talked to people about Puerto Rico, um, I would find that most people like hadn't been there or they had, but they there most people that I've met and encountered their experience with Puerto Rico was very much as a tourist stop on a cruise. That's how most people I know have actually experienced it. And um, they've been to this like really small part of it, um, which which is still lovely, like good for them. But um, it was really interesting to me, like sort of the, there's a split I find between sort of people who uh, who are who experienced more of Puerto Rico and, and spent a lot of time there, many of whom are Puerto Ricans, um, versus sort of what tourists see of Puerto Rico or sort of the, the more limited view um, of Puerto Rico as a tourist destination rather than like a place people live. I think a lot of the Caribbean has that feeling the Caribbean's really been bought and sold as a tourist destination. Um, and most people don't know. And of course, that's a great joke, right, from West Side Story, from the song America, that Puerto Rico is a U.S. Commonwealth, right? That's a joke. It's like nobody knows in America, Puerto Rico's in America, right? That's from the song America. 
Thank you, Stephen Sondheim. Um, but, uh, and obviously Leonard Bernstein. Um, but, um, you know, I think that I was so eager to really talk about the island and also sort of explore the island um, in ways that I hadn't seen in books and cinema, and I'm sure they exist, um, but I really hadn't seen too much. I think um, there are a couple writers um, who I thought were really great at doing this, um, but most of most of what I'd seen about you know work about Puerto Ricans had been Puerto Ricans um, in in the U.S. you know or sort of in the mainland of the U.S. or Puerto Ricans in migration or in motion. Um, Esmeralda Santiago wrote this book Conquistadora, which is like a historical fiction set in Puerto Rico. That was the first time I'd read something like that, and it was awesome just to sort of see Puerto Rico in this larger history, not just this like battleground, you know, like um, Jones Act kind of like Banana Republic battlefield of sugar and, and uh, bananas, but as like a real and vibrant part of this like history, because I'd grown up going and knowing that it was like the oldest city in the new world and you know that it had this really interesting and rich story. Um, and I also think that like there's something really um, uh, double consciousness inducing about being both this Latin American Caribbean island and being a commonwealth of the United States. And it definitely, you know, every every post-colonial nation, colonial nation has multiplicity reflect uh, of refracted identity. And Puerto Rico has its own. And I really wanted to talk about that and think about that and think about like what that status has done, you know, the past hundred and I guess 50, 140 years of being a commonwealth, what that's done to like identity and sense of self. It's, you know, it's both this Latin American ideology and sort of nationhood, but it is a part of the US. And so that there are these, you know, there are these differences, right? That Puerto Ricans can always go back to the origin point, but also that the origin point is always this really like messy thing because it in and of itself is this really mixed bag, mixed mixed world uh, melting pot of people brought you know against their will people decimated by disease but their legacy living on and then sort of you know people coming from Spain and all these three people three groups of people together kind of making up the Caribbean making up Puerto Rico um so I wanted I wanted to talk about that I wanted to talk about it in a way that wasn't um only tragic I feel like I've read a lot of really beautiful um works about Puerto Rico that focus, you know, rightfully on the tragedy, but I also want to talk about the vibrancy and the um, the comedy and the sort of ways in which, you know, Puerto Rico can feel really absurd and ways in which it can feel really amazing, like any place can feel absurd and amazing and incredible, like a real place where real people live, um, rather than I think the kind of blowing through, you know, the coming through of tourism. And tourism is a big part of it, but I just, I want to talk about it all. Um, I never really talked about that in, in fiction before. I'd written a lot about Puerto Rico when I was um, writing drama um, and like a lot of my early plays are set there and I was, I've was i always been really interested in Caribbean mythology and Caribbean history um, but this was the first time I think I got to create a story set in that world and very much like my perspective on it because there's no definitive this is Puerto Rico this is what it is or you know this is what it means to be this so I think I wanted to talk more into the questions of, of identity than the answers and talking about the physical space of that felt useful. Yeah, and there's also this really nice place, and I, th I think it was in one of Jacina's blog posts, I think, where she writes about Puerto Rico. She writes, you are, you are other 
you are other here and other there, sort of thinking about the relationship between when a Puerto Rican is in Puerto Rico um, versus when they are in the United States. This idea of you're kind of constantly othered. And, and there's also this, just in terms of how Americans, I, I hesitate to say typical Americans because I know that is a sweeping generalization, which one should yeah. not do. But there is this confusion in terms, right, that people get mixed up on talking about Puerto Ricans coming to America. Um, are they immigrants or are they migrants, right? They can't be immigrants because they're not they're they're not really from another place. Um, well, they have that, citizenship, so no. right. Yeah. Um, so and that was something that I thought was really interesting that you that the novel really does a very good job of holding intention, this idea of as much as Elena, for example, would want to say something for certain, um, because I think to me anyway, one of the things that she's after, uh, which hopefully we'll get to talk to in a little bit, but is about this idea of home, right? And we think of that as a certain thing. And it, it seems that every time she kind of turns around in the novel, she is somehow wrong-footed or made uncertain, um, either externally or internally. And so she is kind of constantly othered every time she every time she turns around. Absolutely. Um, I think that there is this sort of, there's this term for like a certain kind of experience called like third culture experience. And I think more and more, I feel like that is the post-colonial experience, that all post-colonial experiences are third culture. Uh, because there is, for I mean, first of all, it's like, no, obviously, identity is never a monolith. Um, but uh, I think there is this sort of, I don't want to use this term schizophrenia because I don't want to like, you know, it's, it's um, I don't know what, a, but a better way of sort of thinking about like fracturing of identity. We all have, I think, a lot of trouble with like multiple identity, even though, of course, we all exist in multiple identity. Um, and I think that national identities or sort of regional identities crave definitiveness. And yet our understanding more and more in the world is that there is no definitiveness when it comes to identity. Identity is a slippery, fog-like thing that the more we try and sort of categorize, this is what it means to be from New York. This is what it doesn't mean to be from New York. The more we come across exceptions, probably, you know, that that we, we can't find, we can't ever pin it down. Um, and I think that, yeah, there is absolutely something I wanted to capture in, in Elena specifically as a character that she can't pin things down. Um, and part of why she feels that, that she can't pin things down um, is because of what she comes from, is because if she doesn't know her father's background because he's hidden so much from her. But there's also like a greater truth beyond that. And, there, and there's truth in that, but there's also a greater truth beyond that. And that it's un, it, these things are not singular ultimately she'll have to decide, or, you know, these characters will have to decide what it means to be this, that that if you are constantly looking for an outside source to tell you what to be, you will never find it because they will always be in conflict, right? So the real journey, I think, for, for a character, for Elena specifically, is sort of trying to be okay with the uncertainty or trying to create internal certainty rather than needing it externally. And I think that's like, I think that's adulthood. You know, I think that's like the, the most impossible thing for any of us is sort of how do I figure out how to be okay with all of it, with what I've been given, with what I'm choosing, with the parts of me that I hate that are, you know, that that come out with my parents' voice, with the parts of me I love that I'd never thought I would, you know, like learning that your own internal barometer is sort of probably the only one you can really um, trust for identity is like an exhausting adulthood thing.
One of the struggles that she has, uh, which I think is also part of adulting for everyone, is whether it's, uh, you know, uh, your parents or your favorite aunt or whoever, but seeing that particular close relative as a person in the world, irrespective of any sort of familial relationship, you have ideas about what that person should be in that particular role. And the reality might be completely, completely different. And someone who I think, and forgive me, this is not necessarily a full form thought, because as you said that, I sort of was trying to put pieces in my mind together. Somebody I think who kind of maybe gestures towards that sort of taking a step back um, and trying to impress upon um, Santiago in this case that, you know, your mother is also a person, is Pearl, Pearl Schultz, uh, <laughs> who I, I I don't know why she struck me so much, but I really, and, and in some ways she is, I think, kind of a minor character in terms of thinking about people in books as major or minor characters. Perhaps she is a minor character, but Pearl Schultz for me was somebody who really stuck out um, in my mind, um, maybe because she was a teacher, and maybe that perhaps perhaps that's why. But um, she's a New I, Yorker, because like she's, she's, she's a New Yorker, yeah. But she seemed she seemed very invested, and, and I guess in some ways, sort of, you think about sort of how how kids today are growing up, and sometimes kind of needing external voices who sort of break down kind of baggages around relationships and try to extend if not the wisdom, try to extend the grace to another person to sort of see someone for, for who they are as opposed to how they relate. To me, that, that seemed a really striking part of part of the novel as well, that someone like Pearl exists to kind of try and show Santiago, even though I think he's he's un- incapable. I mean, we don't really know, I guess. I shouldn't say that he's incapable. We just don't know. Absolutely. I mean, I think that is, I, I love that you said that came about, like, that's also the biggest, that that is being an adult. I feel that so deeply, that, that trying to see your parents as people is the the most adult you know it's 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 one of those and i and i often like truly i do and this is like a big reveal about me like i absolutely judge other people about like like how soon they started doing that like i can i have i think i have a really good barometer of like the first time a person saw their parents as an adult and like the older they are the more i'm like ooh okay here we go for you like you're on a journey you know i think that i saw my parents as adult as as people very young that doesn't mean that i don't still want them to I think we never get over wanting our parents to be what they are for us I actually don't think we get over wanting anyone to be what they are for us you know that's the sort of we are the center of our own universes it's impossible not to be and like the best we can do is try right like we want people to be what how they serve us or and our, our needs and our understanding of them uh, when they move beyond that or move away from that it's very difficult and it's it's very difficult with the people who sort of fundamentally brought us into this world, right? Sometimes I see my two and a half year old niece like scream for my sister-in-law and just go like, mommy, mommy, mommy. And like, I still want to do that. Like I'm 35. Like I want, like I have, I want my mommy to just, you know, it's like, she's, she's a whole person, but like, I just want her to be this. Um, So I think that, you know, first of all, I think that people like Pearl Schultz do exist. She's actually, she's modeled off of a real person. And I do find, I think that Humans in New York is great about this. Like I often find these people who like, there are, there are these incredible people in the world who really see and do for others. And that doesn't mean that they're not full complex people with their own needs. I often think we don't think about their needs Um, because, but they, there are these people, especially in education who, and I think so many people who um, talk about their success, talk about those people who saw them 
early and saw what they were trying. And, and, you know, I think I've had, I definitely had these people in my own life um, who saw a struggle, who saw a problem and stepped in and were like, this is what's happening with you. Let me help you. And I will remember them for the rest of my life. Um, Pearl Schultz is based on an English teacher my father had who did sit down with him at a Chinese restaurant and help him fill in his applications. Um, and I think that for the character of Santiago, you know, I both, I, I love the way that you talk about it. I mean, I don't know if this character is capable of seeing his mother as separate. And I also think that one layer on this character is the way in which he is obligated financially and duty bound so that his mother is, is a, a burden, a duty, um, as well as a beloved and a, and so I think all of that stands in the way of her being a full person for him because she's so clouded by all the things he must do for her and how complicated that is. And those are layers and layers upon relationships of, you know, sort of our financial obligation, our emotional obligation, mental health issues, and how they cloud the personhood and the person sort of in front of us becomes their their issue, their illness, and we often stop seeing the them and their intention because sometimes we don't even know it. Um, I think that there are these people like like Pearl Schultz, and I think they are in education. You know, I think we often see them in our education um, because educators, especially if they are good ones, are just so primed to try and see the personhood in children. And therefore, I think they're better at seeing the personhood in adults. They're all they they see a landscape that many of us just can't. Um, because they just try and see the personhood in all of these stakeholders in the educational journey. Um, so I love that you loved Pearl. I love Pearl. Um, and I, I think that like, I get really obsessed with backstory of even like minor characters. I think it's one of my most fun things to do for me as a writer. And I know not everybody loves that, but you know what? I love that. So like, there's the joy for me. One more question for you. And this is maybe more a question about perhaps about process, but also I guess what you have learned as a writer through this particular book project, but there's two timelines in this book. Santiago's story is mostly in the past. What we get of him in the present is hazy at best. Elena's story is very much in the present and she is trying to sort of find her way through this fugue of the past. Two timelines are tricky right? Uh, trying to trying to balance those two. What did you learn about writing in choosing that kind of structure for this book? Oh, I love that question. Um, and I and I want to talk about I want to talk about my agent because I think that like um, she really uh, the, the reason that this this book runs with these timelines running in opposition. Right. So the structure of the book works like we begin this book with these two characters it at this moment in time. And then one of them moves forward in time into the present and the other starts moving backward in time. So Santiago's story runs reverse, you know, moves from this really definitive moment with his, a moment that's very definitive for his daughter and sort of a blur for him. He's in a, a real alcoholic case. And then he's he moves backwards and backwards and backwards to his birth to or to his sort of being inside of his mother's uterus. You know, that's sort of the, the, the end point for his story. And then for, you know, the, the the present timeline is through Elena's eyes and she is thinking, she's trying to investigate the past, yes, but she's moving in the present. 
and initially when I wrote this book, I wrote both books in like in in temporal order. So I was writing from Santiago's childhood into adulthood and then Elena's, you know, present into more future sort of, you know, past into immediate present. Um, and I think that my my agent, Julia Carden, um, you know, when we talked about it, um, sh she really sort of pointed out that, you know, that doesn't create tension for the reader um, because they know all this stuff Elena doesn't know. And so much of the book is about what you don't and can't ever know about people, how unknowable people are, especially when they choose to be. Um, and learning, as we talked about sort of a little bit, learning to be okay with the not knowing, with the ambiguity, with the, the lack of security, stability of sort of who you are, what you are, what you come from. And so that if everybody knows all that stuff that Elena doesn't, it's sort of, well, what's the compelling tension just that Elena will never know it? And I think that's a really interesting question in terms of thinking about writing is sort of what is the tension that you want for your reader and to a certain extent for your characters? What are they trying to find out? And, and there are times when it sort of springs back to like a dramatic principle of dramatic irony. There's times when it's really amazing and feels insanely good to know something your characters don't, right? You as the reader. And there's times when it's really tedious um, because you're just kind of like, figure this out. And that that razor blade, that it's a very small margin between thrilling and tedious, right? It's sort of often about like how much time we spend with them not knowing it can be very like, especially in a romance, it can be the crux of the romance. Like, you know that he's a prince, but she doesn't. And that's the thing. And that's the angst. And that's the original. Um, but it can also be really annoying when you're like, oh, just, just move on, like figure it out. So I think exploring the dimensions of what feels great and what feels terrible in terms of knowledge that the reader would have or knowledge one character has and another doesn't, that taught me a lot in writing this book, thinking that through. And I think that's something that the drafting process really took, you know, the balance of that um, is trying to strike the right one. That, that was really an education within this format. And I think that, you know, two timelines, the question of it is why do it? You know, why, what is one story commenting on the other? If you're dislocating your narrative in two or five or seven or whatever, how many pieces you want to dislocate it into, how can one comment on the other without feeling repetitive or um, expository or, um, I don't know, insulting to your reader. Like, you know, are you sure you got it? Here's it 10 more times, right? So I think those are all educations in writing. Each, 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 each thought process around that is an education in writing of like, how can it, this be useful and enriching rather than, I guess, for, again, for lack of a better word, repetitive and tedious. Hopefully I achieved the right balance. I don't know. I think you did. I think you did because I think I think two I think two timelines. Anytime you're trying to to take someone who you don't know, um, you're trying to take them a couple different places. It's a very very tricky thing to balance. Um, yeah. And I and I liked not I liked not knowing. I liked sort of Elena's frustration. I mean, I didn't like her frustration for her <laughs> because that would be awful. But um, I liked that. I like that she didn't know because that to me that felt very real. Um, the book that I kind of um, come back to with like time traveling in a way, I guess. But I, I always think about Kate Atkinson's Life After Life. Oh my god, I love that book so. I much. do too. That I love that book too. Class and like information and 
what repetition is useful and what repetition, like it's, she, it's perfect. It's a perfect. Yeah. I, when I, I taught that in a first year writing course, oddly enough, Ooh. I did it. Yeah, I know it's a lot, it's a lot, it was a lot for, for, because the last unit in that course was always revision. And for the longest time, you know, the typical narrative that you get from a first year student is well, why do you have to revise? And then Kate Atkinson perfectly wrote this book. And I was like, this is, this is why, this is why you have to revise. And then they kind of finally got it because then that was sort of a very practical example of why revision matters, what, what you can do with one change um, and even how that book opens, right? What happens if someone had shot Hitler? Oh, God. You know, um, and the Harper editor in the UK, she recommended that book to me and it like, yeah, what a, what a masterclass in information distribution. Yep. I always think of this play by Rajiv Joseph, Gruesome Playground Injuries, that refracts, you know, that the, the relationship is told out of order, but each one feels very purposeful. It is that sense of trusting the writer, trusting the, the story, that this has purpose and meaning and is, that there is greater meaning in the refraction of time than linear time, you know, yep. because otherwise, why do it? And I think that is, you know, you can think about it, you can think about theory, you can read amazing examples, but when you try to do it yourself, that's when you learn. I learned more deeply from trying it myself, I would say, having worshipped at the altar of these amazing examples, trying it. it, Yeah, it was hard, but it was good. You know, it was was fun. Yeah, good. Well, Leah, I could sit here and talk to you forever. So thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you for having me. I love talking to you.